If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm trying something new. As many of you know, every Wednesday evening, I co-host Sean Atwood's live YouTube show, Atwood Unleashed. It's a two-hour live show that has some big differences to this one, of course, as Sean has 700,000 subscribers and they have very varied and sometimes quite extreme views. But it also has a lot of crossover in viewers and the kinds of guests that I would typically love to interview on On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Typically, each Wednesday, Sean and I each interview three or four people for around four hours that's two hours each well Sean and his wonderful producer Ash Michael have very kindly allowed me to share interviews that I particularly enjoy from his show for a Saturday space on this show it's a lot of episodes as it will now be three a week which is in line with the biggest podcasters out there they do three a week i owe a lot to sean and ash so do check out atwood unleashed on youtube and the full audio version of this also goes out on sean atwood's true crime podcast so go have a look at that go listen to that subscribe when you get a moment sean's totally mad but really quite an amazing guy i interviewed him on here before he's a former ecstasy smuggling crime boss who did five years in an arizona prison and he's now a top podcast interviewer and all-round lovely guy. These episodes I take from Sean's show are, at the time of doing them, when I do them, they go out live. This means you might hear me interact with some of the viewers in the chat. If weird or unusual things happen, I'll leave them in because I want you to hear this as the viewers initially did. It's all live and a bit different to the produced and polished Monday and Thursday shows I do uh, on this podcast. Unfortunately, in this particular case, the platform we use didn't pick up my microphone. So it's my rubbish computer sound, uh, computer microphone. So it will normally sound much better than this. I don't want you thinking that every Saturday my microphone's going to sound like that. It happened, and you're mostly going to hear from the guest today anyway. And that is Mark Follman, author of the book Trigger Points, all about the specialized teams of forensic psychologists, FBI agents, and other experts who are successfully stopping mass shootings in the US. He looks to bust myths about mental health or stereotypical shooters, and it's a really interesting listen. We speak with the demographic of Sean's audience in mind, as many of them are staunch gun defenders, and I think my audience probably tilts a little the other way, but there'll be a lot of diversity among you as well. Um, There's no judgment, that's the whole thing here, no moralising, curiosity, not judgment. Um, According to the BBC, just a few stats here, the US is pro rata, the largest gun-carrying nation in the world. It has 120 guns for every 100 residents, that's more guns than people. The next highest in the world is Yemen, with about 55 for every 100 people, 55 guns that is, and then Switzerland with 45, then it gets much, much lower after that. 52% of Americans want stricter guns. Gun laws, 35% want them to remain the same, and 11% want even less strict laws. These percentages lie very strictly across party lines, with Democrats almost entirely in favor of stricter gun laws and Republicans 
opposed to stricter gun laws. They want, you know, more freedom around it. Look, my stance is this. I'm not used to guns. I didn't grow up around them. And they're not really part of my culture or upbringing. It's hard to ignore the stats around gun-related crimes in the US or to ignore what happened in Australia where they were banned after a mass shooting and no more mass shootings occurred. However, I do understand that the right to bear arms is the Second Amendment of the US Constitution, that this is a hugely important symbol for a lot of people around issues of freedom. And while many people might hold out hope of at least stricter gun control, Guns in America are going nowhere. So we can debate and argue about it all day, but we won't get anywhere. That's why I like how Mark focuses his argument not on gun control, but mental health issues and learning how to react better to potential mass shooters. On Monday, it'll be Dr. Gad Saad on the parasitic mind of woke culture that infects students and academics on campus. It's another one for the culture wars. But now, and thanks once again to my friend Sean Atwood, here's Mark Folman on the surprising psychology of mass shootings. I have been focused for many years now on gun violence as an area of coverage and mass shootings in particular. And I have a new book called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, which is all about a prevention method called behavioral threat assessment that is aimed at uh, identifying patterns of behavior and circumstances that lead up to mass shootings and using that knowledge to prevent these attacks from occurring, uh, which we have far too many of here in, in the United States, as you know. Yeah, that's an interesting place maybe to start, actually, is, you know, what are roughly the statistics uh, with like American mass shootings compared to the rest of the world? And what is behind that? Well, it's tricky because defining what a mass shooting is, is, is challenging. And there's considerable debate about that, especially in recent years. Um, when I started building a database of mass shootings a decade ago for Mother Jones, uh, we used a, a pretty conservative criteria uh, to define the problem, but it's a complex problem. And, and part of the definitional challenges, there's this sort of arbitrary baseline about the number of victims. Um, and, and so we used an approach that said four or more victims killed, uh, which was adhering to the way that FBI experts and criminologists who'd studied the problem historically had defined it in part. Mm. Um, there are other databases now that use a much broader criteria uh, that look at the number of shooting victims as injured or killed, which is a much larger data set. So that's one example of how it's it's sort of difficult to track in terms of the number of attacks and the frequency. Um, but no matter how you look at it in, in that respect, the problem has been growing over the past decade in the United States. And I think it's safe to say that we have an inordinate amount of these and far too many of them, there is certainly no comparable country elsewhere in the world that has the problem anywhere near the level that, that we do. Is that pro rata as well, even sort of accounting for population levels? Uh, I, I guess I'm thinking if, if you look at population, somewhere like Brazil must have, and I imagine they have quite gun, bad gun crime as, as well, or is it still very different? Well, per capita, it's much higher in the United States than most other countries. And for this type, particular type of problem, these mass public shootings, 
um, that are that seem difficult to explain in terms of motive, um, you know, that seem to be indiscriminate in some ways. That's a problem that is pretty unique here. It, it does exist in many other places in the world, in Europe, in Canada, in Asia. You have attacks like this, but they're far less frequent than in the United mm. States. And, and what do you think is behind that? Because obviously people get very upset and people in the comments will get upset if you say it's about guns because they always say it's people who kill, it's not guns. Obviously, you know, that's there's some truth to it, but there's a simplification, right? And so, or is there a culture of just being a bit more open to like, I might shoot someone or what's, what's going on? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. It's one that I think many people are interested in. Um, from my perspective, there is... You know, it's a complex stir of things and convergence of things, I think, in more recent years. Um, you know, there's always sort of discussion about whether or not America is this more violent society somehow. Certainly the gun culture is highly relevant. We have a, a lot of firearms, an estimated 400 million now. Um, there are questions about culture, pop culture and media influences. Uh, I think the, the political turmoil and volatility we've seen in in recent years has, has started to contribute more. There's more kind of ideological extremism in the mix of the cases that I've studied um, and from the perspective of threat assessment experts. So it's really this sort of brew of, of different things. Uh, but the, the question of, of, you know, what are the sort of wider cultural and political forces driving it is, is a complicated one. Um, what I try to do with my book Trigger Points is to really move beyond the political debate over guns. As you note, you know, we have this kind of perpetual argument over gun laws in the United States. Everyone's very familiar with. Um, and, you know, years ago, I started asking the question, what else can we do about this problem? There has to be more that we can do. There have, there have to be other ways to look at it. Um, mm. And that's when I came across this field of work of, of behavioral threat assessment that seemed to have quite a lot of promise for helping to deal with uh, the issue of mass shootings in particular. Hmm. I think that's a good way to go at it because I think, you know, because of the political divide, as soon as you start saying, hey, let's take away guns, let's do this or that, or this is the reason, then I think a lot of people will just close, you know, because they'll feel that threat sensor and the amygdala just kick off and go like, I don't want to hear this thing. But I think exactly. people, on both, yeah, people on both sides can probably agree that whatever the reason is that America has this disproportionately high level of, of shootings, uh, everybody can agree that we'd like to prevent them as much as possible. So tell me a little bit about behavioral threat assessment. Sure. And, and just to be clear on that point, also, I don't see it as either or. I think that the debate over gun regulations is very important and that will go on. But it's mm. this is an additional way to look at it that I think is very important and potentially an additional quite powerful uh, tool or solution to the problem. So what behavioral threat assessment is essentially is a, a multidisciplinary collaboration. It brings together expertise in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, in workplace management, uh, brings together a team of people who can evaluate cases of concern. So when a person is causing fear or anxiety, in a workplace or in a school or in a community, you have a team of people who can look at the situation, gather information, um, and develop a broad picture about what's going on with that person by interviewing people around them, by looking at lawfully available records, if there are anything you know, related to school or work history or possibly a criminal history. 
Um, looking at social media information has become increasingly important, I think, for obvious reasons. And then deciding with using this expertise to, to, to A, evaluate the level of potential danger. Is this a person who is focused on violence, who um, may be developing plans for it, preparing for it, um, and then developing a plan to intervene, and ideally doing so constructively? The work of the field is largely focused on getting in the way of violent thinking and planning before it happens. And the way you do that is often by extending help to people because these are people who need help by and large. Um, you know, one of the big myths about mass shootings is that they just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, there's this notion of people just snapping, right? We hear that in the aftermath of so many of these cases, but that's not what's happening in these cases. The reality of it is that these are planned attacks. This is violence that's developing over time. So the work of threat assessment, which has developed out of this research into that process, is to identify patterns in that process leading up to attacks and using that knowledge to then intervene in constructive ways as, as much as possible. Mm. So this is the thing, I guess, like, um, you know, got this message here from Grandmaster, USA is the best country with, with the best of the whole world. And no one's denying that, that. Um, but, you know, gun mass shootings are disproportionately high, the highest in the world, right? Is that right? I think on a comparable basis, yes. For any other country that's comparable to the United States as a society, yes, we have okay. an inordinate amount of these. Okay. So, but even so, the amount that actually happened, you know, with millions and millions of people is very, very rare. And you've got millions of people who you might, or at least hundreds of thousands who might be acting a little bit suspiciously on the internet. So how on earth do you go about going like that one, that's the one that's going to do it, you know? Right. So this is a really important question about this method because on its face, it raises that concern, right? That this would be an assault on civil liberties, a big brother state, you know, the stuff of minority report, right? That kind of dystopian yeah. pre-crime yeah. type approach. But that's not what this work is. It's it, in a sense, it's the opposite. Um, it doesn't use broad-based surveillance of online activity or anything else of that nature. Um, those elements come into play in a specific case of concern. And the way that most cases begin in this field of work is through an ordinary person speaking out with worry, with concern, raising a hand and saying, hey, you know, my coworker is saying some things that are really making me uncomfortable. Um, I'm, I'm worried, you know, something's wrong here. Or students in, in a school setting, you know, see a, a peer uh, making violent drawings or making comments about bringing a gun to school. There are many cases, many threat cases like that. And school shootings that have occurred where that kind of behavioral warning sign is in play. And that's, that's the, the essence of this work is looking at the trail of behavioral warning signs and understanding better how to recognize them in advance. So the use of publicly available social media information, for example, only comes into play in that context. There's no such thing as, as data mining Facebook and Twitter to try to figure out who the next mass shooter is. Um, that's not yeah. possible. So it's just making it a little bit more accessible maybe for others who are concerned to maybe call a phone number uh, or, or be able to report it. Do, do these people tend, the, the shooters, are, I'm imagining most of them as you know teenagers at school and stuff like that. Is that, is that right? 
Well, there's actually a wide range of perpetrators. I mean, this is one of the things I do in trigger points is, is go deep into sort of debunking a number of big myths that we have about this problem. And one of them is the idea that there's this like, you know, recognizable character profile of who a mass shooter is. Um, you know, people tend to think of them as uh, relatively young white males. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the case. I mean, there are many mass shooters who fit that mold, but there are many others who do not. Um, there's 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 actually quite a wide range of of uh, age of background in terms of you know ethnic minorities race um, cultural background um, rural versus urban there and there are some women historically too although this is overwhelmingly a male problem as most people know there have been some female perpetrators and in more recent years that's come up more in the context of school shootings. So again, there's no way to define this problem around character profile. The distinction is that behavioral threat assessment experts and, and the research they use focuses on profiling a behavioral process, not types of people. I've never heard of a female mass shooter. I've just clicked it into Google and there's lots of pictures of people. I can't believe, I can't believe, we had a mass, well, I think he killed three or four people in the UK, like the first time in years, somebody went around on the South Coast somewhere. Uh, but again, it was like, it was that stereotype. It was the sort of white guy who, who might have had uh, social problems and that kind of thing, hated his mother. So he really was that. That's the stereotype, isn't it? So what why, what is making people get into this, these behavioral patterns to then go and shoot up a school or shoot up another place or, or whatever? Yeah, so often you're, you're talking about people who are in, you know, serious personal crisis, uh, who are nurturing deep grievances, a sense of injustice, uh, or you know, a feeling of of needing to seek a way out of of desperate problems. Uh, there's often depression and suicidality involved. Many mass shooters are suicidal. It's one of the early findings of my research with the the database on mass shootings. More than half die in suicide, um, either you know, taking their own lives literally with the weapon or dying in, by what's known as suicide by cop. They go into a situation where they know they're going to die in a shootout at the end. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, behavioral conditions and circumstances like that that define the situation of a person who's headed toward this type of attack, what the field of threat assessment refers to as the pathway to violence. It's, it's an escalating process over time where the, a person is kind of spiraling into a deeper state of despair, rage, um, you know, um, a sense of of, of developing a, a sense of justification for what they plan to do, um, seeing violence as a valid solution to their problem. And this comes up in a lot of cases that I've studied. Uh, and so the question then is, well, why does why and how does someone come to see a mass attack? as a solution to their problem. And I think that goes back to a question you were asking earlier, why this exists in America maybe more than anywhere else, um, culturally, politically, and so mm -hmm. on. That, that's really the behavioral process we're talking about. Um, hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Another huge misconception about mass shooters is that they're all totally insane. And you see this blame for mental illness as the cause. And that's just wrong. Uh, Mental illness does not cause people to go out and commit mass shootings. In many cases, it's not present in a clinically diagnosable sense, although these are all people who are very mentally unhealthy, right? They have a lot of problems. But the point here is in describing the role of mental health, there's often a very rational thought process going into these attacks. These are people who are developing a violent idea, they're planning over time, they're preparing, and they're deciding when to carry it out. There's no snapping, it's a decision. And they go and make these attacks. So I think, you know, that's something else that's really important here, that this is so widely misunderstood in terms of the role of mental health and the way that we talk about it in the news media and politically in, in, in the United States and, and beyond. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think obviously it could be stigmatizing to those with mental health conditions. I remember I had somebody with schizophrenia on my other you know, podcast and, and he was saying, you know, we don't, I don't go around hurting people. Uh, that's right. You know. Yeah, so that I guess that's yeah. Most crazy. people who have the, a condition like that, like schizophrenia, are not violent. Uh, in fact, they're more likely to be victims of violence. There's a, a long body of research showing that. So that, that it is stigmatizing and, and counterproductive to understanding the nature of this problem. Yeah, but it's complicated as well because, as you say, maybe it's not mental illness, but it's mentally unhealthy. There's something about, and you often get these, you know, some bright people probably they can put together a whole narrative in their minds and then follow that path does religion play a role often or or some form of even you know atheistic religion some sort of dogma some sort of tale that they tell themselves yeah i think maybe the better way to see it a little more broadly is the the role of ideology or extremist thinking is certainly in the mix and and um, I detail this at, at some length in trigger points. That this has become a bigger issue in recent years. It's come up in more cases. Um, a couple of examples of this would be, um, you know, things like uh, violent misogyny. That that exists in a lot of these cases. Um, mm-hmm. What's become come, something that's become known as toxic masculinity, uh, the the so-called incel movement. We've seen more mm-hmm. mass shooting cases driven by that. Uh, there is political extremism in the mix more now, um, particularly in the era of Donald Trump kind of, you know, normalizing and unleashing a, a greater degree of, of political extremism that has always existed in the United States, but has certainly uh, had a, a real resurgence in recent years. So that's come up in more mass shootings in recent years as well. So, you know, religion may have a role in that mix as well. Um, but it, I think it's more broadly understood as just extremist thinking, right? Mm. We got a message here from Scott saying, you know, Andrew, how about they're just evil and mean? Um, and I think 
you know, I appreciate the comment, Scott. I think I think that misses the point because isn't there? There's often with these things like a lot of victimhood. So they don't think they're the evil, mean ones. They think they're the good, righteous ones, and that society has been mean to them. And I think most people who've done really bad things throughout history probably thought they they were the good guys, right? Yeah, I think that's a really important point here, um, and it's a theme that I also included in the book. That you know, it's easy for us to look at mass shooters and say these are evil monsters and sort of treat it in those sensational terms. And that's an understandable reaction. It's a horrific crime that these people are committing. But that sort of othering of these people, of these perpetrators, is it's it's too easy. And it sort of lets us off the hook from understanding what's really happening here. Because as you say, many of them feel justified in what they're doing. And so the more important question is why and how? How do they get to that point, right? If we can understand that better, we have a better chance of intervening, of getting in the way of it. So I, I, I've come to think, and, and I argue for this in Trigger Points as well, that the way that we sensationalize this problem and kind of frame it that way as you know, evil monsters, the sort of tabloid culture that existed very strongly here for a long time, you know, just a few years ago, you would see the faces of these perpetrators splashed all over the front pages and being looped over and over on cable news. Um, and it reinforces this idea, these are horrible monsters. But that's not a helpful way to look at this problem if we want to do more to solve it. Mm. And I suppose, yeah, the othering and the stigmatization makes them more likely to then do it. So it's all cyclical. A lot of threat assessment experts have said to me in one form or another over the years as I was working on the book, um, the better way to look at it is, of course, the acts that these people commit are evil, are sinister. Um, you know, maybe we can't relate to that. But the people themselves aren't necessarily evil. What they do is evil. Um, there's yeah. a distinction there that I think is important in expressing how we understand the problem better. Sort of a, an, well, almost an extreme edge of the banality of evil theory. Yeah, sure. But not that banal because they go and shoot up schools. So I guess it's just right. just, just evil things they're doing. Um, yeah, none of this so, is to say yeah. that, you know, to justify what they're doing. It's, it's horrific. But um, again, mm -hmm. it's sort of meeting the reality of it where it is. You know, how can we understand this through the lens of human behavior? That's really what the, the core focus of, of my book is and what this field is trying to do. And they've prevented many cases, too, um, by, you know, being able to identify better what leads up to these attacks. I, I was able to get inside a lot of threat cases for the book and to see how this process works in a school setting, in a workplace setting, um, situations where you had people who were in serious crisis, having kind of you know really disturbing thoughts, setting up for some very scary situations, taking steps to, to plan and prepare, to, to gain access to weapons. And by intervening this process constructively, these are cases where there almost certainly would have been a violent outcome. Uh, you can't say that for sure because it's proving a negative. It's a counterfactual. Sure. Um, but the, the evidence is very compelling in a lot of these cases that I was able to, to, to get a deep look into, uh, talking with people who've worked them, looking at the confidential case files. Um, I, I chronicle quite a number of them in the book that I think really show how this process works. That, yeah, it's really interesting, and, and, and I get you know people in the chat are saying no, they're just evil. Everyone, they're all just evil, and it's I think like you know fine, and I understand that um, that temptation to, and the emotion involved because it is an emotional thing. Uh, exactly. I sort of I feel a bit like it doesn't really matter. It, what's important is how do we stop them, and how do we approach this in the future to make sure that you know fewer people are being killed. So could you could you give me an example of the kind of 
sort of one person, maybe an egregious case uh, of somebody who got who was stopped, and how that happened. You know, is somebody someone called and told about them, or what what went on? Sure. Well, there there are a number of cases that I write about in the book uh, that are set in a school system in Oregon. Uh, the Salem Kaiser School District there in, in the city of Salem developed one of the first kind of pioneering programs of threat assessment for schools after Columbine in 1999. And I spent a, a lot of time with them in 2019 looking at cases, watching them work cases. Uh, there was a kid, a high school junior who I call Brandon in the book, who's not his real name, uh, who was threatening to bring a gun to school. Um, in, very, in a very specific context, he said he was going to come back to school on a Friday with his dad's gun and shoot up the school. And he said this to a, a peer and some other students overheard it and, and reported it uh, to a, a faculty member. And so the threat assessment team started looking into his case very quickly to determine, is he serious? Uh, is this a real threat? It, does he have access to a firearm? What else is going on with this kid? Um, unsurprisingly, perhaps, he had a whole history at the school of, of kind of similar problems, making comments about school shootings. Peers weren't sure if he was serious or not. Um, he'd made a very uh, kind of snarky comment in the year before about after Parkland had happened, there was uh, a bunch of students were going to have a walkout as part of the national protest that, mm -hmm. that took place around then. And he said, uh, a teacher asked him if he was gonna participate and he said, nah, I, I might just shoot up the school instead. Um, it's a pretty odd comment, right? Well, he's made a series of comments like this. So that's a pattern, and that's, that raises questions for the experts who are looking at this. And, and then they're finding out that he is showing some other signs of personal deterioration. He's dropping out. He's, do, he's failing in a class or two that he was doing well in. He's dropping out of an extracurricular club that he really liked. Um, there's some questions about whether or not he's showing signs of, of suicidal intention. Very important signal in these in a lot of these cases, as I was suggesting earlier. Yeah. So the team, you know, is evaluating all this information, and then they're stepping in constructively to try to help him because they determine this is a kid who's in serious crisis, has acute low self-esteem, is making these threatening comments. Um, they have a, a, a school resource officer, a police officer, go to the home to interview him and his mom to try to determine if he does have access to a gun, which fortunately he did not at the time. But then the question became, well, what are we gonna do to manage this longer term, right? Because this isn't just gonna go away. Um, by helping this kid, extending him counseling support, giving him a, a, a special individually tailored education plan, um, getting him involved in some things that speak to his personal interests, um, you know, with his friends, with connecting him more with teachers who he likes, taking all these kinds of constructive steps. You know, I track this case over months and his, his demeanor starts to change. His behavior starts to improve. And then he goes on to uh, do better. And the following year he's doing fine and he graduates high school. Um, by the measure of the work, they've steered a kid who was in very serious crisis, who was explicitly thinking about violence away from that. Um, so I think that's one example of how this works very successfully in a school setting. They had another kid who was um, really becoming fixated on the Columbine mass shooting. And this comes up in a lot of school threat cases as I detail in trigger points. Um, there've been more than a hundred cases in the past two decades of 
both threats and attacks where you had the perpetrators really fixated on Columbine, seeing it as a source of inspiration, wanting to imitate it. So this, this other kid I write about was starting to dress like one of the Columbine shooters. He wanted to get a tattoo of, of the perpetrator's name on his arm. Um, you know, pretty worrisome behavior among a set of other things that the kid was doing too. So again, taking this broad picture of what this kid was experiencing, what he was up to, how he was behaving, using that information to evaluate the level of danger and then make a plan to intervene and manage him very carefully over months. Um, and in the same, you know, same similar kind of outcome, um, directing him away from that violent thinking, improving his situation, getting him the treatment he needed. And again, a case that no one will ever hear about because nothing bad happened, you know? It's not news when nothing happens, right? But in, in this world of work, that is the success story. And there's some very vivid and dramatic cases like that that I, that I was able to follow um, that really, I think, prove this work can be very valuable. Hmm. I'm just interested in 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 the comments. I, I just just to know, like, if you, uh, going back to the gun laws, if you put a, put a one if you're pro, you know, uh, uh, being allowed to have guns, and and a two if you, if you're not. I just I'm just intrigued uh, to know. Um, going back to to what you were just saying. Um, so, are these are these kids at that time? Are these people at that time? Are they um, are they made? I mean, are they made aware that they're being looked at in this way or is it sort of happening without them realizing it? And what if they say like, no, I don't want any of this? Yeah, no, it's a good question. In many cases they are because often this process of evaluation and management includes talking directly with the case subject. I think that's most of the time that's what's happening. So, mm. you know, these kids are being approached by school counselors, school psychologists and, and offered help. And this, this occurs in workplace settings too, in cases I write about in the book where you'll have an HR director go to an employee and say, essentially, hey, you know, we're worried about you. Like, what's going on? How, how can we help you? What's wrong? Um, and, and in many cases, the case subjects are responsive to that. They're open to it. Not in every case. You're going to have people who are, um, you know, in, in a very bad situation or who may be hostile or dismissive of that. And then that requires a different approach to management. Um, but one thing that's extraordinary to me in, in digging deep into this subject was seeing how, you know, this is an approach that experts at the FBI are taking. There's a specialized team there at the Behavioral Analysis Unit that helped develop this work. Um, others at the US Secret Service, there's a lot of history there in terms of the development of this field, collaborating with mental health experts. And, you know, these are top tier federal law enforcement agencies in the United States that are in the business of mental health interventions, essentially, in, in collaboration with the experts who do that. So I think that's a pretty extraordinary measure of how this works, you know, to have the FBI advising a, a, a company to go to a troubled employee and say, hey, how can we help you? Can we get you into counseling? Instead of trying to just arrest that person or fire them, which, you know, the, the field has learned historically, that doesn't work in many cases. These people remain dangerous and they will come back or they will go elsewhere and commit violence. So experts have learned you, you need a different way to approach this and, and over time have seen that these constructive interventions can often make a really big difference. Um, sometimes you do have to arrest people, you know, that's inevitable, yeah. but, but in, in many cases that's not the case. And I, it's very counterintuitive, but it's, it's really remarkable to see a range of this over time. Hmm. 
Well, it's fascinating work. Um, where can people find you and your book? Yeah, um, so I'm at Mother Jones. I'm on Twitter at Mark Fullman. That's where I'm most active on social media and always talking about my work. Uh, the book is Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. It's available at booksellers everywhere, online, Amazon, and the bigs and the smalls. You can find it. Um, it's from HarperCollins, and uh, I hope people will read it. It's a, a whole different way to look at this problem that I think people will find interesting. Thank you, Mark, for coming on, and thanks, Sean Atwood and producer Ash Michael, for allowing me to use these interviews from the Sean Atwood Atwood Unleashed YouTube show, which is also part of Sean Atwood's True Crime podcast on audio. Now, apologies again for my poor microphone sound during that interview. That will be rectified by next week's episode. It was really insightful talking to Mark about the psychology of mass shootings. I learned a lot, and he dispelled a lot of myths for me. I hope you guys got a lot out of it too, and that it brought you something of interest and value this weekend. Do check out Sean's true crime podcast, Sean Atwood's true crime podcast, where fuller, longer episodes can be found. And please do keep on reviewing this show. I've got uh, a nice one from uh, Bevis13, gave five stars in the UK on, I think it was on Apple. Um, I run out of podcasts very quickly and always looking for new ones to subscribe to with the topics I like. I listen to them from the moment I wake up whilst driving and mucking out my horse at the yard. Came across yours after listening to a podcast on Sean Atwoods. Wanted to hear more about the guest story, so searched her name and you popped up. Listened to the episode and then went back through your podcast very fast and have been addicted since. I am on episode 53 after just one week. Keep up the good work. Well, that's quite extraordinary. 53 after one week. Each episode is more than an hour if you you know include the intro and outro. Uh, some of them are quite a lot more than an hour, some a little less. So we're looking 53. We're looking at about 60 hours in one week. Wow, that is a super fan. Thank you very much, Bevis13. So I guess, I mean, you're someone who will be pleased that I'm adding, making it, you know, three episodes a week. Uh, another one was from Big G's mum. They actually posted this um, a couple of months back, I think it was. Um, the initial review is, found your podcast after hearing your interview on the Jordan Harbinger show. I can't stop listening. I'm already into the 40s. I absolutely love your podcast and I've recommended it to friends and co-workers. Several of, several of us listen and then discuss your guests and the topics. Your interview style is refreshing and the topics are thought-provoking. Please keep up the good work. So that was the original one and then an update just recently. Still listening and still love it. Oh, thanks, Big G's mum. Uh, I didn't even know you can update them, but you can apparently update your reviews. So go ahead and do that if you want. Don't don't make them negative, please. Uh, but you can if you want, and I'll probably still read it out. Thank you, everyone, and see you Monday with Dr. Gad Sad on the parasitic mind of woke culture that infects students and academics on campus. He's got a really interesting backstory, having grown up in Lebanon in the Civil War. Uh, so do definitely listen to that one if you get a chance. And otherwise, have a lovely weekend.